1995. It was the year of the O.J. Simpson verdict. Seinfeld. Frappuccinos were unleashed across America. And a little website called Amazon sold its very first book. 1995 was also the year 22 soccer players from the US national team flew home from Uruguay feeling they were ready to take on the world. They'd beaten superpower Argentina. They'd made a soccer god, Diego Maradona, cry. They were primed now to start a qualification run for the 1998 World Cup. And in their naive yet hard-pounding little soccer hearts, they thought they could be giant killers. Dark horses. A team with an outside shot at shocking the world. And maybe laying claim to the cup itself. Oh, we had a swagger, but that wasn't arrogance. That's confidence. Confidence and arrogance are are completely different for me. Um, We were a confident team. When we walked out on the field, we knew that we could beat anybody in the world. That's the United States captain, Marcelo Balboa. He was a defensive rock who also played club soccer professionally down in Mexico. Balboa had long been a fixture of the national team, and he was now gearing up to lead it into a World Cup qualifying run. It's a protracted process in which the US would play 16 games against their neighbours from across North and Central America and the Caribbean over the course of 12 months. Earn enough good results and they'd be in. But World Cup qualification is an ordeal in its own right. Victory, it's never a given. And so the team's coach, Steve Sampson, he got to work and he had some decisions to make. His long-term goal, that was to qualify, to win his way into the World Cup. But day in and day out, it was as if Sampson was holding Broadway auditions. Which players would make the cut? Who'd own a starting role? And in what position? The worst thing that I ever did is I started thinking, okay, what does Samson want from me that I can do in this game today to get myself back a starting spot? That's what got to me. There were two different Steves. So there was a Steve sort of at the beginning of, you know, when he took the interim to about middle through the qualifying. Then there was a second type of Steve afterward. This is Jeff Agus. You've not met him before and we'll be returning to him soon. Just know for now, he was a defender who'd been on and off the team since 1988. So he was an established veteran by the time Steve arrived. The first Steve, that is. The first one was very inclusive and he brought a lot of people into the tent and, you know, asked a lot of questions and, and he was very inquisitive. Steve Sampson version one, defer to the players. I'm just grateful to have a job. And then the second type of Steve was sort of, I know what I'm doing and I'm, this, is, this is what I'm going to do. And you're either on the, you're on the bus or you're not on the bus. And I'm going to be driving this, this the way I want to drive it. Steve Sampson version two. Who calls the shots? I do. Did I feel that I had to do something different for a world championship? Absolutely. But if you don't evolve and try to influence change, that's when you get caught. He didn't want to let this car drive itself. And I, and I can respect that. That's defender Alexi Lalas. But I also think at times he wanted to, to literally sit in the driver's seat and drive it. And... Um, I don't think that he was necessarily equipped to do that. And, and I don't think that he recognized that that wasn't going to get the car going as fast as it could and, most importantly, get it to the place that it needed to be. 
Now, Lalas had become the face of the sport in the United States, thanks partly to his exploits in the 1994 World Cup and partly because of his subsequent move to play in Italy's Serie A, the world's best league at the time. And he took to the field with a signature sweat-filled ginger goatee and a side career as a minor rock star. That's one of my favourite tracks from Ginger. Alexi's debut album, a copy of which I own to this day. True fact, just three months after the 98 World Cup was said and done, Alexi's band, yep, Alexi's band, would go on to open for none other than Hootie and the Blowfish. Oh, this is American Fiasco. I'm Roger Bennett, and this is American Fiasco. The show that proves that there is life after soccer, especially if you know the right hootie. Back to decisions. Every national team squad requires a delicate balance between veterans and youth, between experience and speed, and in the search for that balance, Marcelo Balboa remembers another big decision Steve made. He came to Mexico and told me that I was no longer captain, that he was going to make John Harks captain. John Harks was in and Balboa was out and he was surprised. Balboa had been a fine captain. He'd been on the national team since the late 1980s. He'd represented his country in the 1990 and 1994 World Cups. His personality, he was humble. He was a low-key guy. He had this calm, under-pressure demeanour and an ill-judged mullet. And I think both were crucial to his success as a physically dominant defender. Now, John Hawks, he was a different animal. A scrappy, tenacious Jersey boy. He loved being at the centre of things. He was the first American to play in the elite English Premier League. And for that, he was respected and revered. In England, he'd learned to thrive in locker rooms that were filled with ego, sarcasm and quick-witted put-downs. As a result, he was already a big personality on this squad. He was the one willing to yell at referees. He'd even yell at his own teammates if he thought they deserved it. And as a midfielder, he was the gent best positioned to direct Steve Sampson's aggressive offence. That strategy that Steve called forward-mindedness. You called him captain for life. I know. I don't know where that came from. But what I said was, as long as I'm the national team coach, he was my captain. One decision down, one bajillion to go. In football as in life, decisions have consequences. And Steve's decision to replace Balboa as captain left the defender shaken. It just messes with you mentally, you know what I mean? Because you're you're this confident defender who has been the mainstay. You were the captain for a while. And uh, all of a sudden, now you're rattled. It affected me leading into qualifying because I didn't play every game. Samson put me on the bench in quite a few games. What was he looking for? I don't know. That was the the sad part is I didn't know. He never sat me down and told me, you need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. 
So the thought process was, okay, I'll figure it out myself. I go back and watch a tape and that's okay. Maybe I did that wrong. And again, it, it, it mentally, it just got to me because I always played thinking what he wanted and not what I wanted. You can't play like that. It's not how you play the game of soccer. You're supposed to play it freely. You're supposed to play it in joy. You're supposed to do your job. But when you start thinking of what the other coach wants, you, you play even worse. But John Hawk's the new captain. He didn't deal in doubt. John was a, a pioneer of sorts. That's Alexi Lellis. Because he was a guy that had not only played in the 1990 World Cup, but also had already gone overseas and blazed that path for so many others later on. And not only had been there, but it had success, was a name. Um, I, I want to say I, I didn't look up to him, but I, I respected that this was somebody that could make me better. Now, the team had a press officer, Jim Frostlid, and he went everywhere the players went, on planes, buses, meals, locker rooms. He watched them all coalesce around their new leader, John Hawks, and in turn, he saw Hawks cement his position. You know, he was the captain, captain for life. When you have that, well, what do you, what do you think as a player? You're like, you're on top of the world, right? You're, you're, no one's good. You can't knock him down. Untouchable. Untouchable. It's important to know this. As the US players set out to qualify for the 1998 World Cup, only five of them had ever been through this kind of trial before. That was way back in 1990. In 94, the team didn't even have to qualify because the US hosted the World Cup and hosts, they get an automatic spot. So this time, it was different. Here's how you win a golden ticket to the World Cup. The US first had to survive an initial round of six games and qualify for a second round of 10 more games known snappily as the Hex. For the players, this test is both physical and psychological. Stifling heat, waterlogged fields, high altitude, smog, and in every city they travel to, a stadium filled with people who truly hate them. Well, imagine 115,000 people. And you look up, it's pretty intimidating. Marcelo Balboa describing a match in Mexico. As you walk up off the top tier, there's a big long rope and you see this body coming over the top. And it's a dummy dressed in a US national team uniform that just bounced, literally hung, maybe 50 feet from us, but they threw it from the top tier and they just hung there. With a noose around his head. Yeah, with a noose around his head. And then there was that time in Costa Rica. Worst thing that was thrown at you was what? Well, worst thing that was thrown at me was probably a bag of urine. Jeff Agus, the defender. It was me, Jeff. It was me. <laughs> um, but those C batteries, those hurt too, if they get through the fence. And even as they're getting pelted with debris and bags of piss, it's important to note the players, they're not just competing against other teams. They're also competing as individuals against each other. Even if their team qualifies for the cup, there's no sure thing they'll be on that final 22-man roster. When you get to a national team, every single player there is a starter, or you wouldn't be getting called into your national team, because very rarely do players that don't get playing time for their club teams get called into the national team. Goalkeeper Brad Friedel. If you did a poll with every national team player around, um, guys that were starting or on the bench, and you said, do you feel like you're a number two in your position, they would say no. On September 7th, 1997, another game, another surprise decision. 
And all of a sudden we were like, what, what the hell's going on? Why are we making a change the day of the game? It's unheard of unless someone's hurt. Steve had benched Alexi Lalas, the long-serving defender, the face of the team, out for the first time in four years. Eric Winalda, he was also out of the team, but with injury. And he remembers returning to his hotel room, a room he shared with Lalas. And we had both found out that we weren't playing. So I came into the room and Alexi was standing on top of the air conditioning unit facing the city, I'm probably the 10th floor of a hotel, with a guitar, a shower cap, and in his underwear. And I walked in and I said, are you okay? And he goes, nope. And I said, I'll give you 10 minutes, I'll be back. And I just shut the door and left. Because we were all in this state of mind of, of like, what is happening? What was happening is this. The team's highest profile player, the closest thing it had to a star, had been reduced to playing guitar, mournfully, in his wife hunts. Here he is, Alexi Lalas. So you're not in the starting lineup. I mean, look, it happens to everybody. It's not something that I like. And so I, I could see what was coming. Usually as you get closer and closer to the World Cup, your set 11 starts to kind of materialize and people know what's going on. And so I, I knew what was going on. Steve Sampson was starting to whittle the team down within his mind to the 22 players he'd take to the World Cup if America qualified. Every game, every move, he was sizing his guys up. And they knew it. How did that feel? It sucked. It sucked because I felt that you dance with the ones that brung you. In truth, the players weren't the only ones feeling the pressure. Steve might not have been called the interim coach any longer, but his contract also didn't stretch all the way through the World Cup, and his US soccer boss Alan Rothenberg was making him sweat. Hank Steinbrecher, another Federation executive, remembers. Uh, it was always interim in Alan's mind. You know, it, the joke was he carried a pink slip with him all the time because he felt putting pressure on the coach was the way to go. By November 1997, the American position... It was tenuous. They were seven games into the 10 of their second and final qualification round, and they notched only two wins, four ties, and one loss. I knew my job was in jeopardy. Three games to go. Doubt was setting in. It felt like US soccer could yank Steve at any moment. In fact, they're already courting his successor, the Portuguese coach, Carlos Queiroz. And so, Steve flew to Mexico in November 1997 for a crucial game one of the most important of his career. They'd never beaten or even tied Mexico on their home turf, and the Estadio Azteca in Mexico City, it's as terrifying as they come. Picture 105,000 frenzied Mexican fans eager to delight in American misery as their players had to battle a triple threat of altitude, smog and noise. And so you go in there and you go into the locker room and it's underneath all of the all of the stairs and all the fans, you get everything that's going on. People have been there for hours. People have had a lot of alcohol. They're, they're ready to go. And it's, it, it's a cacophony of sound. You cannot hear yourself think inside that environment. Watching the game, I can't say how much thinking happened on the field that day, but I'll cut to the chase. The Americans got the tie they needed, 0-0. And it was a huge deal, especially because one of their players had been sent off the field after a first-half red card. 
sending the team down the player. The tenacious performance, gaining a draw. The whole thing was so impressive that the Mexican fans gave the American team a standing ovation as they left the field. They were yelling, good job, you know, you got lucky. What did that prove to you? No, you know what it proved to us is that we can win anywhere in the world. And that world includes Canada. There it is. The USA have done it. A transcendent moment. Just one week after the Mexico game, the US team qualifies for the 1998 World Cup in a shutout game against the Canadians. The normally controlled Steve Sampson is almost maniacally giddy. Beaming, he puts one arm around Alan Rothenberg, the other around Hank Steinbrecher, the two US soccer executives who control his fate. I must smoke a cigar with you tonight, yes, Mr. Sir. President. The ESPN's cameras caught the celebration in the locker room. Steve spraying his players with champagne, the whole scene is a little disconcerting, like watching your high school civics teacher beast out at a house party. I can't tell you how proud I am to be your coach. What an honor it is. So proud of each and every one of you. You deserve this 100%. We're on to France, boys. Steve takes a moment to put his arm around his captain for life, John Hawks. And ESPN captured this moment too. Next, a coach and his captain. You're still the World Cup, huh? I know. Huh? Can you believe it? Good. Oh. I know. All when we continue. Do you remember what he says? Yeah, we're going to your third World Cup. He says, you're going to your third World Cup. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yep. And I said, no, I can't. This is brilliant. As you know, because I've told you, not all of the players celebrating in the locker room on that November day would actually get to play in the World Cup. Here's Captain John Hawks. I thought the way that we had performed and the way that we kind of came together on the team, that we, yeah, all of these guys in this room had fought for each other, they deserve to go. But deserving, that's got nothing to do with it. And one of the biggest open questions was which of the two goalkeepers Steve would start? Throughout qualification, two men, Casey Keller and Brad Friedel, they've been alternating in that role. It wasn't only a case where, you know, I was trying to to show myself uh, to be the best player that I was. That's Keller. But I'm also trying to show it to your coaches and trying to show it to the fans and trying to show it to the press that, that I'm the guy that should be starting. I wouldn't categorize ourselves as friends or enemies during that it was a it was a strange time period brad friedel what i can say thankfully and uh, and i'm very happy about is we're friends now jim frostlid told me he said it's one of the most intense rivalries on the team he said when there was a team photo, oh definitely when yeah. there was a team photo you two were even sensitive about who carried the football under their arm in that team photo. <laughs> that, that, that might be you know yeah i mean it was it was hot It's February 10th, 1998, and we're in Los Angeles. Keller's starting in goal, 
It's a huge game against Brazil at the LA Coliseum. Now, Brazil are no joke. They're the reigning World Cup champion, and like their neighbour Argentina, a global footballing phenomenon. Remember, the US team by now, they've secured their place in the World Cup. But not every player on the US team had earned a ticket on the plane to France. And from the opening whistle, Keller kept goal like a man determined to clinch the starting position over the course of the next 90 minutes. That one could have been disastrous. There was a couple times, I remember there was one save and the ball took a deflection or something and I completely dove the wrong, you know, I was going the wrong way. And just, you know, sometimes there's a benefit to have size 13 feet. And I remember just sticking a foot out and just catching it with the end of my toe and just as if I had tipped it with my fingers, just goes around the far post off my foot. And that was the one where I really thought, you know, this could be my day. Good job to quickly come off of his line to cut down the angle and ultimately saves the ball with his leg. You know, best goalkeeping display ever. Fantastic. I mean, he really pulled it off. That's John Hawks. In the 41st minute, Brazil crossed the ball. Their striker, Romario, He's only one of the greatest goal scorers the game has ever seen. And he leaps up. He's just a few feet away from the goal line. He rises up as he has thousands of times before. And the goal is positively yawning open on either side of an exposed American keeper. Point blank, he fires a header right at you. Well, again, it was one of those situations where, you know, you're... You're kind of just spreading yourself. Edmundo plays it wide, right side. Romario plays it into the area. The cross in front, the header, the save! Oh, a diving save by Casey Keller. And again, robbing Romario. Kevin, that is just absolutely phenomenal. As Steve Sampson, I don't think he can believe the save that Casey Keller just made there. Length. And he not only saves it, but he holds it. And I'm on the ground. And, and he's kind of sitting over me because he's, he's, he's like me, more surprised that I've caught it. And I'm kind of sitting down at his feet. And I remember him just, he just kind of put his hand out to shake my hand in the middle of the game. And it's like looking at you, it's like you don't even know how to react. It's like you kind of half smile and then try to. <laughs> I, I never had it happen before. I hadn't had it happen since. I don't think, I, and I guarantee you, Romario probably had never done it before and didn't even know why he did it. Casey Keller won the right to be a starter in the World Cup based on how he performed against Brazil in the Gold Cup, you know? It's now the 60th minute, and the game's still scoreless. Steve substitutes in a Yugoslavian-born midfielder, a man who joined the team just 14 months earlier. He'd become an American citizen to do so. His full name is Predag Redoslavlovic. But everyone calls him Preki. Wijnaldum, working on four Brazilian players. Wijnaldum. There's Preki on his left foot, the shot, the goal! That goal. If you think it sounds good, wait till you hear it. 
in Spanish. It was on his left foot. You knew he had a chance. Jim Frostlid, he's the team's communications director, and he was watching the goal from the press box. I erupted, which is like the absolute taboo to do in a press box. And I yelled and screamed, and, and so did half the reporters. It was like a, this euphoric moment that, you know, everyone kind of crossed this ethical line and we're all like, holy smokes, we're going to beat the Brazilians. This was big. The US had never beaten Brazil at soccer before. It never has since. You've just beaten Brazil 1-0. Are you like, bring yeah, I mean, the, the World Cup look, start tomorrow? Let's be honest. That's John Hawks again. At the time, you're thinking like, we're, we're growing towards a World Cup. We're getting results. We're, do, we're doing well as a, as a nation here. Yeah, we're all part of this. All part of this. At least that's what Hawks thought. ESPN anchor Bob Lee remembers exactly where he was when he heard about Steve Sampson's next decision. I was about to do a two-hour show with President Bill Clinton. It was a town meeting on race and sports. Lee, he must be one of the few sportscasters who can spend all week talking about jocks on SportsCenter and then just turn around and interview the leader of the free world. He's a long-time soccer aficionado too, and he handled all of ESPN's US national team coverage. On April 14, 1998, he was down in Houston, Texas. And I got the email from the press officer of the team, said, I've just sent out uh, the roster. At the time, Lee figured the email could wait. Remember, he was about to talk to the president of the United States of America. And this game, it was only a warm-up, a mundane friendly against Austria. But Jim Frost led the press officer. He was insistent. And he urged Lee to take a close look at that roster. I, I'm about to deal with the president for two hours, so I'm a little bit preoccupied. I look at it, and I, I didn't miss the fact that John Hark's name was not on there. And then I had to send an email back. What do you mean? He said, oh, my gosh, they cut the captain. John Hark's, the captain for life. Life expectancy, clearly not what it used to be. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botin, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. This episode included audio from ESPN, CONCACAF, and FIFA. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. This is Rog. One quick favour. If you enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to your friends, especially those that are just starting to fall in love with the sport during the World Cup. It's guaranteed, I promise you, 
to put them over the top. One more thing, write a review on Apple Podcasts and tell them what you think. I know it sounds crazy. I never do it either. I cannot tell you though, just how much it helps. Courage.